0: Welcome to BoardBox Extras. Our goal was to share the best of blockchain gaming with our community, matching great players with great games that they'll love. To learn more about BoardBox and our partners, go to BoardBox.io and grab a BoardBox NFT to join our private community of gamers. Alright, let's click the start button and get to it.
1: Dramatic music.
2: Pretty much can't start a conversation about Metaverse stuff without playing some Tron. Thank you guys for indulging that. <laughs> oh my God.
1: Lord, I finally get to
2: hear your voice. Yeah. It's uh, it's not South African, so spoiler. Um, but, <laughs> but likewise, uh, Herman, uh, good. T- we've been DMing a little bit back and forth the last few months. Glad to have a conversation with you. Uh, Rob, pleasure to meet you as well. Pleasure to meet you as well.
3: Yeah, you
1: too. So, like, pretty, pretty slow day at the office today. <laughs> the funniest you part is uh, Rob and me are actually at the wedding of our third co-founder, Peter Lipka. Um, and the wedding consists of a table of people panically conducting a marriage-based war room, liaising with the people in the actual war room. Um, and every 20 minutes, someone's like, it's fine, it's fine, everything's okay. Completely nuts. I just gave a best man speech and a uh, and the other side first trip speech at the same time. So, wild.
2: That's amazing. Well, I, I hope uh, I hope the gift one of the gifts you're giving to the bride and groom is maybe a plot of land or something like that. Yeah, pretty generous. Gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank you guys for so, taking the time look- to chat today. Yeah, would love to. Would love to. You know, hear a, for anyone who's not familiar, you know, with, with you guys, would love to hear a quick intro. Just you know, talk about yourselves a little bit. And um, do want to? I do want to like just set expectations and say, hey, we're not here to talk about like the deep intricacies of other side. Obviously, that that that's a thing that happened today, and it's a big deal. That we could reference <laughs> it, but um, want to protect you guys from not spoiling any secrets too.
1: Oh, I, I think um, the good news is because the light paper came out, we can actually talk about a lot more now than we could before. So this might be the Sweet. very first Twitter spaces where we can actually legitimately answer some questions. I mean, we m- may not be able to answer everything, but definitely more than usual.
2: Amazing. Well, Herman, why don't you go first with the quick intro? Uh, Rob, you can go next and, and then I'll follow up and we can kind of jump in.
1: Awesome. So um, hi, my name's Herman and uh, myself, Rob and a few others started Improbable about 10 years ago. And, you know, we're computer scientists. We all kind of met after graduation and we were kind of idiots. We wanted to solve a really hard problem, which is how do we make virtual worlds far more interesting to interact with? Not just bigger in scale, but actually richer. Like, how do we enable all the experiences we dreamed of as kids? And it took us about nine years, um, hundreds of people, and uh, a disgusting amount of money to get to the point where we could actually solve those problems. And I have to say a large part of that is due to Rob's brilliance. So I don't know, Rob, if you want to introduce
0: go for it
2: rob i might have muted you because uh you had some background noise but uh yeah please uh, go ahead
3: don't you worry it's uh yeah so i'm uh, so one of the improbable co-founders as well Uh been in the metaverse most of my life you know i, I kind of joined second life when i was 14 years old and That's about 15 years ago these days um the technical co-founder of improbable so I've, I've been building a lot of the metaverse tech that you saw being shown off in the other side demo today
2: amazing and i have to say as a uh you know as a player as a as a consumer as an owner of uh several things within the ecosystem uh that were demoed today uh very very impressed with the technical specifications i've never seen any that many people talking uh in a digital platform at the same time um you know in the real world certainly and it's all kind of a mess but the way you pulled it off was was really impressive so i'm, I'm very curious to talk about how you gamify all of this in the future um on my end um, you know appreciate appreciate you guys uh taking some time to chat with me on my end for those that don't don't know me uh i go by board elon musk on twitter but um in the the real world spent over 10 years in the gaming industry um designed a few games myself understand kind of how how deep that world goes and how much work it takes and really appreciate the fact that these guys are building in public Um, i spend most of my time now uh, as a co-founder of Boardbox, where you know our job is to spotlight the best existing or upcoming games that are on chain or in the metaverse and certainly we're speaking to two people heavily involved in that today so um we kind of picked a trolley uh, provocative title on purpose, which is, you know, why do game developers hate the metaverse? Obviously, we're not those people. Um, but figured it would be a valuable um, jumping-off point because, um, you know, as time has progressed, um, as this space has become more and more popular, um, there has been a lot of growth, but there's also criticism and uh, challenges that need to be overcome. And I think that, you know, if we're going to have, like, an honest conversation about all the amazing stuff, it might be helpful to kind of talk about, you know, what what are those what are those hurdles that we have to overcome with leveraging this technology to make really good games and enhance gameplay. So I I wanted to kind of you know pick your guys' brains. Like Herman, for, for you, um, if you think back and kind of rewind to when you first heard about this idea of a metaverse, um, and and I, I do want to plug your book for you that's coming <laughs> coming out later this year and talk <laughs> all about you. this. But um, but like if you go back to when you kind of thought heard about it for the first time. Were you skeptical of it? Why were you skeptical of it? And what sort of made it click and changed your mind?
1: Oh, I I was. I mean, we used to joke about the term. uh, You know, I thought, I think, like a lot of people in the games industry still do, wrongly in my view, that the metaverse was like a misunderstanding about what video games were by non-gamers. You know, it was something that people who didn't really understand the space imagined would be in the future. You know, like some corny idea from the 90s about what an online game would become. And I think a lot of people in the games industry think, well, we already have it. You know, we've had Second Life, we've had MMOs, and their default reference point was the same as ours, which is those types of experiences. I think what made it click for me, what made it change for me, um, you know, over the last sort of five, six years was starting to understand that there are a bunch of really valuable experiences that, A don't look anything like um, MMOs or online games. They're they're a very different kind of experience in terms of the value and fulfillment they bring to people. And B, more interestingly, they can't really live alone. You know, a great example for me was the Alexa concert we did uh, last year. You know, we brought in this amazing K-pop star and she did this really cool meet and greet with thousands of her fans. Now, that wouldn't make a very good standalone game, but it would make a pretty cool experience. So then the question becomes, you know, how do we make it viable economically and practically for many different creators to somehow connect experiences together? Not all experiences, but those experiences that rely upon one another for context, for value, for growth. That's what started to make it click. And and just to close, I'd say, I don't think the metaverse replaces online games. I think online games will carry on existing, carry on being an interesting medium with a lot of value. I think this is something new, something different, and perhaps for quite a different audience uh, of creators.
2: Yeah, I love, the, I love that you see it as additive and not a replacement. I, I kind of fall into the camp of a lot of games today already are a metaverse, right? Grand Theft Auto, Minecraft, et cetera. Um, this is a new take on it, and it's also a cultural shift, right, of people sharing IP interoperability um, and letting uh, you know players have a bit more ownership uh, and stake in, in the games that they're playing. Um, so it's less of a technological... Te- technological change and more of a, uh, a cultural change for me. But I, I appreciate that everybody kind of has their different take on it. Rob, how about you? Uh, you know, where where did the skepticism start or were you, were you born out of the womb believing this was going to be our, our normal state of being?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bit weird for me, right? Because like as a teenager, I sort of grew up in a metaverse and I saw how that affected me personally. But then I've also spent the last 10 years working within the games industry and seeing kind of the reaction to that. I think the first kind of maybe an analogy of explaining the metaverse is like, hey, you know, someone makes chess, someone makes poker, and someone makes shoots and ladders. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had this experience which connected them all together? It, it literally is nonsensical when you think about the traditional rails of what a game are. But, you know, as you're kind of hinting at with with experiences like Minecraft and Fanta photo they're becoming more, you know, social spaces that have more meaning than just being things you win and lose. <laughs>
2: i love that you didn't mention monopoly which i consider the worst uh, tabletop uh game. Yeah. <laughs> we
3: can say there will be no monopoly in our men of yeah. we've got that, we've got that. <laughs> yeah but I,
2: I definitely like the idea of kings and rooks and, and shoots and ladders that seems like a fun game exercise
3: it's, it's, uh, it's going yeah. to make it better right it, it can only make those games better right if we just add them all together and,
1: and, that, and that's that's, can... the, that's the tragedy exactly that people think that
2: yeah and you guys you kind of talked about this and, and herman you shared a definition earlier on twitter when um when our Twitter space has got kind of called out um, in terms of like why do game developers uh, not like yeah. uh, not like this idea? So I, I would love for you to, uh, if you're able to, to kind of read that back because I thought it was sure. a really strong definition.
1: Sure. So you know, people like Matthew Ball define the metaverse as a virtual environment with 3D avatars, something, something. They connect together. I, I don't think that definition is entirely. You know, bullshit. It's just it doesn't tell us anything new. We've had avatar-based 3D spaces for a very long time. So what is it that makes the metaverse different or special? How can we quantify its metaverse-ness, so to speak? So for me, I think the best way to start is not to look at the 3D graphical environment. It's to step back and look at the why, the meaning, the value of the whole thing. So on that basis, I would say the metaverse is really a network of meaning. It's a collection of objects, people, events, things. Think of sport, right? It's who won which match when. It's the entire league. It's the meaning of the rivalries and the relationships between uh, different things in sport. This network of objects, ideas, events, people, and places even, this only has power and value and becomes more than a game when human beings decide to imbue it with value. And once again, sport's a great example, right, of a, of a universe that really matters because we decide it matters. So one quality of the metaverse is it's a network of, of meaningful things, experiences, events, people, etc. The other quality is that it facilitates the exchange of value between worlds. So, for example, I go on to the world of sport. I become a famous football player. And that matters. That means something in the real world. I come back into the real world and suddenly I'm famous in the real world. When England wins the World Cup, it actually affects the geopolitics of the real world. When I win a match of Halo, it it makes no difference. And this takes us to the difference between the metaverse and video games in the traditional sense. Video games are uh, closed loops of value. They're a bit like the holodeck in Star Trek. You know, whatever happened in the holodeck stayed in the holodeck. Nobody ever talked about it. It was like done. It wasn't affecting the society they lived in. So that's what's special about the metaverse. It's the meaning to which we ascribe these, these experiences. It's the fact that we elevate them beyond play. And it's the fact that value is exchanged between them. And this is why Web3 is important because it facilitates that exchange of value. But that's a whole other, a whole other topic. Uh, did that make sense?
2: It does. And it took us 11 minutes to reference uh, Star Trek. So I'm, I appreciate you holding <laughs> back uh, until that point. And I I do want to call out that um, you know we'll we'll definitely open up to questions towards the uh, the end of the hour. So thanks everybody who's jumping in and wanting to request. Um, Rob, I would love to throw a question to you. And you know, again, tying back to the the name of the space and you know, why do game developers hate the metaverse? And and certainly from like a technical standpoint, um, what do you think are some of the valid concerns today that you know that have to be overcome? Like if you're somebody who's worked for you know uh, an Ubisoft or an Epic Games or an Activision and you know, there's a company that's trying to hire you to go work for them, right? And they're in, in sort of the Web3 space. Like, what are the, what are the kind of the, the criticisms that are likely in your head? And how can we kind of get past that?
3: I think the one that kind of like big promises of the metaverse is around interoperability, this idea that, you know, the, the kind of meme is like being able to take your gun from Call of Duty into Minecraft and have that be something that makes sense. But as a game developer, maybe, maybe you've seen it yourself. That's just not how video games are made right now. Like, if you look at any individual video game, the idea of a weapon or the idea of an object, there is no common meaning and no common ontology around how those objects can map together. So as a game developer, you're rightly looking at this vision, and you know technically how things are made. And you know that it's not particularly viable unless you completely change how things are done. Um, one kind of glimpse which starts to make sense, and it, maybe it's going to be a bit kind of crazy, but I'll try it, is the idea of emoji everyone's decided that there is a bunch of symbols inside of text which mean the same thing no matter how they're represented. And you can have emoji in any different platform, any you know iOS, Android, Slack, and there's a consistent understanding of what those objects are and what they mean. And I think like we need to start to think about open standards like that in terms of how we define how objects can move between bots.
2: Yeah, so, so basically like letters, numbers, emoji, that's such a, a good example. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah no- nouns, adjectives, that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, even physics, right? Like most games choose to use like earth-based real physics because they want their players to just immediately understand how to move uh, versus trying something completely different and then having to conform yeah. to that in,
3: in different games. And having all those different organizations opt in to say, you know what, actually, no, the, the idea of a gun in Call of Duty and the idea of a gun in another game are now going to be the same concept and there's going to be interoperability between those concepts, that's a big lift. And it, it kind of is counter to a lot of how, you know, the economics of games work and the design of games work.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned the the light paper is not out. So, um, are it you, is out. It is out. Are, are you able to share a little bit, sort of, your guys's approach and how you're thinking about, um, you know, open standards and making sure, sure. that lots of people want to, you know, connect to the, the games that you're building?
1: No, sure, sure. I think uh, maybe I'll provide some context, and I think Rob, you know, maybe you could go deep on some of the technical aspects as well. I mean, I would say that um, the most important thing we're trying to do is make sure that the most important pieces of information that define the value and logic of each metaverse exist in a format that is away from the game engine, away from the way the metaverse happens to have been implemented. So imagine the notion of say a hat or a skin, This can be defined in a way that's abstract, that doesn't have to rely upon a particular game engine or a particular implementation strategy. That's just where the graphics come in. So what's it worth? What's its value? Who can own it or change it or touch it? What rules does it follow? What behaviors should it have in any world that it's implemented in? We're kind of cheating a little bit with Improbable because we don't have to create interoperability in a very very broad way between all kinds of technology stacks since we're supplying a technology stack we can make assumptions about the different worlds that implement it which means we can get to interoperability a lot faster so for example um if i were to make baudillon world um and launch it tomorrow out of the box you could take your other side avatar jump into a portal and immediately appear in baudillon world as your avatar because of the way in which we're sharing the tech stack underneath and behind the scenes the last thing i'll say before rob letting you jump in is We've done something really important we haven't talked about and this might be the first time that we've actually ever spoken about it and I think we can now say it, which is we've actually contractually agreed with all of our Metaverse partners, um, including other side, that there will be the legal right to take your avatar, your character, and certain things between worlds. That's really powerful. That means if you make your own game or your own world, you can actually invite in members of the Bored community who can, at their will, go and interact with you. And that's a really, really powerful step. and and extremely necessary. I mean, if you were to try to connect together existing games today, it would be a negotiation nightmare. By starting from the very beginning with this freedom of movement principle, kind of a bit like the EU, every world that joins the network is building from the beginning with the idea of the other worlds involved. Um, But I think, Rob, there's probably more to say on interoperable objects technically and the standards that we're opening up.
3: Yeah, for sure, I can take that. Um, So yeah, we've been talking a lot about experiential technology, like you saw in the other side us uh, earlier today beyond on to have thousands of people in the same space and that's been something we've been working on for a long time but also we've been incubating a lot of the ideas around what entropic objects could actually be um, you know at the most simple level people think of it as like a 3d model that could go from one space to another that's sort of like the first point yeah uh, if you go deeper down the stack you get into the idea of like well this is a 3d model but actually it's a 3d model of a sword what is a sword well i guess you need a you know universal idea of a sword i guess you need universal idea of Uh, melee weapons or equipment or things that can be on your avatar uh, you know things you can equip um so that's a lot of what we've been incubating and uh one of the features you might have seen in the other side event was being able to import your nfts and show them off as profile pictures and and emoting in the space that's just the beginning of the pipeline we put in place to allow you to bring in you know metaversal objects into the space and we're stand you know you can import a board ape you can import like sort of a crypto punk you can import whatever you want and we're standardizing that and bringing it in and it starts with 2d objects but it's going to become 3D objects, then it's going to be actual avatars, the behavior, and meaning. And with that entire system, we're going to be publishing the open standards behind that. So not just our experiences, but anybody else can abide by them as well.
1: Absolutely. That's, an, that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, it's going to be a hierarchy of different levels of interoperability. We're building SDKs for other side, but we're also building SDKs for the core M2 network. So full-on game development, which requires much lower level access, can also happen. Um, but you know, there's a lot to say there. So Board, why don't you direct us to where we should go?
2: Well, just to kind of uh, recap, and this is from a, a non-technical perspective, but what I'm hearing basically is, it's easy for you to invite people from other metaverses, other platforms into your open standards. Ultimately, you, are, you, are, you control the physics, you are the god mode, you are able to do whatever you want in your world, but as long as people conform to the rules that you've placed, um, that, that all is fine and you're making it very easy for them to conform because we're all basically following the same physics, right? Like everybody can fly at the same speed. Every I guess what we saw today was the physics were not always equal for everybody, right? Certain characters were bigger, some people's voices were louder. So, um, you know, I guess if you're transparent if, with your god mode, uh, everybody is happy. So t- tell me if that sort of resonates with you guys.
1: Somewhat, yeah, and I think the, the important idea here is the technical possibility for interoperability is there. Avatars can move between worlds. Objects can move between worlds. The legal basis for interoperability is there. You know, there's no issue of IP ownership, et cetera. All of that's being resolved in the way we're structuring the network. And the incentives are there as well. Like, one of the challenges of interoperability is why should anyone bring value to your network rather than, some, rather than make their own? Well, we haven't talked about this a lot yet, but the way we've structured M2, it's not going to be controlled by improbable. We're not going to be taking a lion's share of the value. We're going to be sharing all of that value with the developers, the creators, and the people who are building worlds on top of it. And in the end, they will govern it. So you know, we've taken the decision that the right thing to do is attract as much like, rational inward investment into the network as possible. And the only way to do that is to let go of control. This is why I think the traditional games industry isn't going to get this. This is the exact opposite, and you know this board from your experience of how game developers think. You know, we like control. We like to carefully manage everything about the world that we've built. Um, There's a a story I've heard about uh, with with some of our work with Microsoft where, um, I don't know if it's true, but I heard, you know, one studio referenced another Microsoft Studios game casually in their title. And it caused such a rift, a letter of apology had to be written. And this this is for two companies that are part of the same organization. You know, game developers are very protective, very jealous. I think this is why we're going to need an influx of new creatives new spaces that are starting from the very beginning with that openness in mind
2: yeah i mean i i'm so glad you said that because i think that that's a philosophical shift in, in game development i think to a game like super smash brothers which like literally smashes together so many different ip and there's all these legal requirements but i also think about like the game auteur you know mr sakurai and everybody kind of in the industry knows that he like nearly kills himself to like to bring these games to market and it's a fantastic product in the end, but it's just years and years of us waiting around um, and hoping that what he delivers on, you know, is fun. And you guys are taking a very different approach, which is like, let's build in public, um, you know, basically open yourself up to criticism, but also, you know, really sort of like, you know, honor and give respect to your fans Mm -hmm. who get to basically see what you're building and then also contribute to it with their ideas and thoughts. But is, is, is that hard for you? Like you guys have spent a lot of time in the games industry.
1: The truth is that it's not really a choice. Um, One of the things that we've realized early on, you know, we've we've had a lot of failure as well as um, successes. You know, it's been a long road to get to this point is that whenever you change up and Bord, I think you'll agree with this. Whenever you change up game design from the well-known genres, the things that have known to work, things can go wrong and it takes a lot of testing and a lot of playtime to discover that something isn't fun. And that often happens very late in the development cycle of a game and it's very hard to fix. Now, when you introduce thousands of people into literally hundreds of thousands of, you know, millions of combinations of gameplay features and interactions with potentially even real money involved, there's no way even the best game designer in the world is ever going to be able to hold all of that in their head or, or imagine how it'll all come together. The only way is to test. The only way is to actually keep experimenting and to create a game that can be evolved really, really well. Um, there's a story that I think we use at Improbable that kind of inspires us, which is um, the story of the first uh, person to win a prize for... Um, man-powered air travel. So this is building an aircraft that you can you know, move with your pedals and actually get off the ground. The team that eventually won this prize were not the best aeronautical engineers. They just realized that every time you do a test, the plane crashes and blows up and it takes like three months to rebuild it. So they just made a plane that you could keep rebuilding really quickly and really easily. And they just tried loads more combinations than anybody else could. And that's our strategy with, with other side. We're going to do so many tests we're going to put so many people into so many experiences, as we have been doing from last year to now, that we're going to learn more. And, you know, the giant Curtis avatar thing that you saw, we discovered that by accident in a live public test. We realized, hang on, that works. That's a cool feature. Um, so this is a survival strategy. This is not a, you know, being nice to the community. We, we literally could not design this experience without these tests.
2: I love that. It's it's kind of like what improv comedians do, right? They they write a script, exactly. They perform. They perform the sketch, and then they figure out, oh, people are actually laughing at something else, and then they iterate on that. And you're sort of applying that to game development versus, as you said, keep it in your head for two years and basically like ring, take it through the ringer over and over and over again. And then when it comes out, the expectations are actually that much higher from your players, right? Because they know you you haven't taken their input and you've been working at it basically on your own for all this time, so. Um, in a way, you're, you're, you're kind of you know, setting expectations uh, in a really smart way. So I, I really love that, that methodology.
1: It actually leads to, um, it's an easy methodology to, to kind of aspire to. But what we found hurt us in the beginning of Improbable is you have to lay some really strong technical foundations to actually make that possible. Most game online services, and, you know, we work with 60 different publishers, they're really brittle. That's why you see so many games fail at, at launch day, right? You know, the login system fails, or something falls over, or servers don't work. They're not designed to be, you know, battered the way that we are trying to batter the system. So I don't know, Rob, if, if you could speak to this a bit, but we've had to invent a couple of very different approaches to, to making our infrastructure ready to go at a moment's notice.
3: Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, you mentioned it from a game design perspective about the only thing you can probably be assured of when you start doing something is that you probably made the wrong thing. And it's about building the wrong thing fast enough so you can develop and discover what the right thing is. That's equally true with technology. Um, and in terms of our approach, you know, normally with a video game, the entire thing comes together maybe five years after the thing's been built, especially if you're thinking about a complex online game. With us, it, we have to really change the way we do development so that we have something testable and ready to be used at scale, you know, month one. Um, and, you know, this project, since it's been set up, we've always said, you know, every single week there's a playable test where we can log in thousands of players. And the way you end up developing, the way you end up building platforms is totally different. But I think the, the results speak for themselves. You know, we're not just talking about high quality stuff. We're, we're kind of putting our money where our mouth is and showing experiences and getting honest feedback, as you say.
2: Yeah, the, the, the results definitely do show for themselves. Um, just to backtrack really quickly, um, and this is off topic, but Herman, did you say that your company was building flying machines? And how did your human resources department? Oh, no,
1: no, 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 no. Sorry. No, no, no. I was, I was describing that um, we were inspired by the story of some people that were building flying machines. And their strategy, their, their strategy, their strategy was Amazing. to build a machine that could be quickly repaired. I, I will say though that you know a subsidiary of Improbable does large scale military simulations. So we've seen a lot of different industries attack these problems, and it's fascinating that you realize you know it's all about moving, testing, and iterating quickly. Um, as a small aside, um, I, Rob is too, too humble to mention this, but I'm going to humble brag for him. You know his team have built a system that actually uses machine learning to learn how everybody is moving and interacting when you're playing a game like Other Side. That learning system then defines a more efficient bandwidth compression algorithm as a result of that data. It's completely wild. I mean, it's a lot of stuff we've never talked about, but that, you know, honestly, people wouldn't believe uh, us if we told them.
3: I I was actually, I was going to write like sort of a, a sequence of tweets about what actually has to go right to have 4,500 people log into the experience you just saw today. And it's got, I I read like 30 paragraphs of explaining it. I was like, okay, this is a little bit too much. But yeah, I mean, an example of something we've done, we had to build a bot system where, yeah, we logged in, like, you know, uh, close to 5,000 people today. But we had a bot system that logs in 10,000, literally at the exact same second to check the system doesn't crash. You know, we have to test the system in its absolute extremities because when you're running an event, it's not like a game launch. Game launches always go a bit sketchy for the first couple of days and then things like level out and get okay. But when you're running an event where the event is one hour long, you don't have any, you know, chance to, to make mistakes. So it's all about doing as much testing as you can up front.
2: It went very smoothly. I mean, you could really kind of, as a, as a viewer, you could see the script. You could kind of, you know, understand, okay, at this point, we're going to be at this location. There's going to be some banter between these characters. Like, it all it all played out like a variety show very, very smoothly. Um, and, and that was so impressive. Um, and so, you know, today, like, I, I I consider a lot of today an enhanced um, tech demo, right? Like, we didn't necessarily get into, like, gamification, although there yeah, was, like, a boss... There was a boss battle of course there was like a treasure hunt so you were kind of like hinting uh or you know the the experience was hinting at things to come which was really cool um but i wanted to touch on sort of this idea of fun because we did promise like let's get really nerdy into game design um so i, I wanted to reference um uh, a writer nicole lazaro and she she's kind of you know talked about game design and, and what what makes a game fun and she broke it down into four keys so one is etern- uh, internal experience, right? Which is like, you're you're basically immersed in a story, often a single player type of game. Um, challenge and accomplishment, right? You're, you're racking up a high score, you're beating other people, whatever it might be. Um, immersion, I think today was certainly immersion, right? Like it was an environment that was completely new and it was um, something that we had not experienced before. Technology we had not experienced before. And then a social experience. Also check the box, you know, today was a very, very social experience. Um, so like, when you're when you're kind of thinking about all the stuff you guys are building and, and ways to enhance gameplay, like what are what are you most excited about? I, I feel like on my end, when I think about technology evolving gameplay, like look what, you know, look what the battle royale genre was able to do and and technology enabled that. So this is taking it to the next level and we're we're seeing things, you know, in the other side that really have not been done on any other platform. So what are you guys personally excited about in terms of enhancing fun in games?
1: So I think that's a really really great framing of the of the question and I think reading into it even more I would say a lot of people would argue that game development is kind of a randomized like art Without any systematic basis behind it, because they're so hit and miss. And I think what you're implying with your reference to that awesome author is very similar to what I ended up researching as, as I wrote my book, which is the field of self-determination theory and psychology, which again has a very similar framing, which is, look, there are a couple of things that seem to give people satisfaction, getting better at challenges of a, that, you know, that really push them, but not too much, making meaningful choices, autonomy, and meaning something to other people. So I think if you if you think about those three areas and you say, hey, what are games already great at and where are the niches? Well, let's look at competence. There are some pretty great games out there if your goal is to feel like you can beat people of equal scale at an FPS game. I don't think we're gonna find it very fruitful to try to make a better FPS title with thousands of players than some other game studio. Whether or not it's technically feasible, I think we're competing in a very red ocean. Then you look at autonomy, you think about choices, and hang on a second, here you start to see some opportunity. You know, A lot of online games are on rails. They don't really give you a lot of choices, a lot of freedom. So perhaps if we can create an environment where there's a lot of spontaneity, a lot of freedom, we might find game design opportunities that give you a real sense of choice. One of the ways I think that, that we're finding that that's coming together, and again, it's very early, is with those actors. You know, having an actual live human there that can react to you, respond to you, play with you, interact with you, it makes you feel like you're influencing the world a lot more because you're actually engaging with them. And universally, that has had a good reaction in every test we've done. One good signal of it is that people followed instructions. Why? They didn't have to follow the instructions. They could have just run around, but they did. And the fact that they did implies something about their, their acceptance of the experience. The last one is on socializing. And, um, and it's not just hanging out and talking and chatting. It's being able to have a meaningful relationship with other people. I think there's some really big opportunities to do that in very subtle ways. You know, what does a marketplace look like? A real marketplace of worlds, teeming with life. You know, is that a game? Kind of, you know, there's a game implied, right, making money, but there are some very interesting opportunities for niche experiences. So in closing, I'd say, look, I think the opportunity lies in attacking those areas that are not well served by existing games, rather than trying to do those things, but with more scale.
3: Rob, any any takes from you? I think uh, maybe the one thing to add is, I think when we first did our large-scale tests with uh, ScavLab, Alexa, and and now with other side, it really reminded me of the experience of going to like a, a music festival, like a Glastonbury, or Coachella, or something like that. And something happens as you increase the amount of people in a space, is you're actually, for every time you double the amount of people, you're quadrupling the amount of potential interactions that can happen. And those potential interactions you can be thinking of as almost like serendipity. The fact that you can see something over in the distance that's cool and interesting and compelling to you, bit of a random story, like I turned into a music festival dressed as a cow. And in the course of going through that festival, I found somebody else who was actually dressed as a cow. And it was just the fact there were so many different people, the likelihood of me having that kind of interesting, fun, serendipitous moment just exponentially grows the more people you can put into a space. So I think it's, it's you know, beyond the whole choreographed fun of maybe, you know, a Counter-Strike or a game like that could be considered, you know, digital chess. This is about creating these serendipitous social spaces where you can create stories and have interesting tales. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Totally so that point, To that
2: point, I I definitely personally look forward to a future where there are games where you have basically zero or almost no NPCs. Right, because typically you've got main characters, and then if you're in this world. You're feeling oh, really immersed. Yeah. You're going into this new city, but, but, they, but like part, yeah, but, part of you knows, like part of you knows, like oh, this is just like a script, right? This isn't real.
3: And what if it was real? It was just people hanging out, having a beer, and like you were yeah, walking by them, and exactly. Like you were in a city. If you, if you ask, what, why is that? Not, why is that the case? It's because for you to be able to pay the salary of an actor or someone to be in the space, you need enough people for it to make sense. You know, you, yeah. it's, it's about can't there's, there's it a certain turning point to do that.
1: And you can't break it up. The trouble is, if you had a million copies of the world, each with its own actor inside it, serving 100 people each, that's just preposterously expensive. But if you have just one city with just one bar, which all the people can come to, well then, you know, paying for a bartender becomes feasible. And in fact, I think, Bord, you've hit something really cool here, which is, That network of meaning, that sense of why the world is important, is enhanced when more of the functions of the world are carried out by people you know are actually real. Even if AI was good enough to to completely mimic a human's behavior, you would know that's not an actual real person whose life is actually affected by what you do. I think that makes a difference. Um, I think AI has a role to play, but I, I totally am with you that something becomes richer as people take on those roles.
2: Yeah, it, it means for me at least. I want to spend more time in that world. Of course, I want to play games in that world as well. But I'm also more comfortable just hanging out and exploring and not getting bored because I feel like, um, you know, I've sort of been here, done that. I know what this character is going to say. I've already gone through all the the fetch quests, and it's kind of you know boring to me. So it's it's an ever evolving game. Like this isn't. Uh, you know, what you're building is not going to have sequels, right? It's just going to have constant patch updates from you, but then also like the, the humans themselves will change over time and what the game is is going to evolve over time because of all that participation. Which again, you know, we, we've certainly seen this in a non-blockchain uh, you know blockchain Web3 world as well. It's going to feel like it's more enhanced because of the, the ownership that comes with it. You know,
1: uh, you know, as you say that, you make me think, and Rob, perhaps, I know we've talked about this before, but you make me think of reality TV versus regular TV. You know, like, reality TV has this magical spontaneity. It is sort of scripted, but it it became wildly popular. I don't know how many people here are old enough to remember before it came. But when it came, it was something very different from highly polished, scripted TV shows. There was something far more satisfying about knowing those events were real. It felt different. It hit different. So maybe what we're trying to do with M Squared and with these experiences could go down the road of being more like reality TV, you know, in some ways less polished because it's hard to be polished at that scale, but perhaps more genuine. And I think that might hit a niche that, you know, traditional online games don't hit.
2: Yeah, I love it. So maybe maybe less like arguing, getting drunk and hooking up with people and more reality of uh, people building cool stuff and uh, being Wait, what's wrong, with,
1: uh, what's wrong with all the things you just listed there? That's a great Saturday night. But anyway,
2: we'll, we'll come back to that at <laughs> a different point this the, the metaverse gets weird uh, or after, <laughs> uh, yeah, other side after hours um, no, cool. so um, I, I definitely if you guys are cool with it do want to open it up to questions and comments from the audience um, before we get to that point um, wanted to kind of close it out with sort of our, our fireside chat and ask you um, kind of like if you if you could think about your favorite traditional video game and if you could rebuild it from scratch um, from the ground mm-hmm. up you know on chain giving players more control, um, what game would that be, and, and, oh, and why?
1: Like, if you could reverse engineer it. Oh, that's a great question. I think I know Rob's answer, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll give mine before you say. I, it think, I in. think I know yours. If you guys know Neverwinter Nights, um, one of my favorite games oh, ever. So good. Yeah, it's so yeah, such a good game. And there were servers. There was one server called Aralith. I don't know if anybody listening played, but it was a role play only server. So you had to be in character 24 hours a day. If you were out of character for one message, you were banned immediately. And the entire world was fully consequential. So if you beat somebody in PvP, they had to fuck off for a whole day. So when the, when the paladin beat the evil necromancer, it really mattered in the world. And I was obsessed with this. It grew into quite a large community, but it was always held back by the fact that the server could only handle 60, 70 people. And as a result, you know, a lot of the interesting dynamics, they kept hitting up against those walls. Imagine that, but with real money. You know, imagine a, a role-playing game like P&D, where there are real consequences, where it can really affect your life or change your life you know, you could run into the marketplace and actually find something of value. So for me, that's, that's the inspiration. But Rob, what about you?
3: I knew that was gonna be your answer, Herman. It was, <laughs> that, was <laughs> great. that was great. Um, for me, it would be, it'd be Second Life. You know, this is a virtual world I grew up in. I, you know, was a developer there. I made friends there. The reason I got into college doing computer science is because I had mentors there teaching me to code. But the limiting factor was when it really popped in popularity, they had celebrities show up and they tried to put on shows and then 50 people could show up in the same space at the same time. So there was this kind of cap on the social utility of the space because you could never really have people congregate. You couldn't have rallies. You couldn't have conferences. You couldn't have these kind of big areas of social meaning. Um, So for me, it would be something like that, like a kind of social metaverse, but adding in the capability for that mass gathering together strong answers
2: um i have shared this publicly before but for me it's rocket league like i want to be able to own my car i want to <laughs> be able to earn money oh awesome, really awesome. it's, just, like, you,
3: it's you, so you, obvious you, wanna, you know you want five thousand goals in play at the same time <laughs> <laughs> That's what the answer is be.
2: yeah like and when i score a goal i want to have the unique you know um you know a cel- celebratory explosion that nobody else has and i'll pay good money to have it so um you know if, if tim nice. over at epic is listening hopefully he he allows me to do that someday um so, great answers, guys. Thanks for the conversation. Definitely want to open it up to, to folks in the audience. Um, I'm going to try to go in order here, but please do do raise your hand. Um, Jonah, I'm going to throw it to you first, and then everyone else, please do raise your hand if you want to chime in. So, Jonah, what's your question?
4: Yeah, hi. It's it's a great room, and it's been a, a really interesting day for uh, our world here. And, and my specialization in Web3 is game specifically. Uh, I'm not the genius developer, but I, I handle other ancillary uh, sides. I, went, I read through your uh, your light paper and, by the way, watched all the gameplay and watched the streams. Very impressive, uh, among what other game devs or other people uh, say, and I have some reasons as to why they're wrong. Um, the most important paragraph of your entire light paper, in my opinion, and Herman, I know you saw this, was uh, open object standards. And you emphasized uh, standardization around the GLTF format. Um, was your reason for doing this to fit it in within the Metaverse Standards uh, Consortium? Or what was your purpose with uh, with going uh, uh, within these standards uh, with your M2 technology? Oh, wow. Great,
3: great fucking
1: question. I mean, I can maybe answer the uh, commercial, but Rob, you should start with the technical.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, you've seen the Metaverse Group has come together, and there's two big standards which are open standards out there. One is uh, USD, Universal Scene Descriptor, which came out of Pixar. So this is very much the tools they were using to have massive scale animations and how their different teams collaborated. GLTF came out more from the web space and has been picked up by the NFT community as the canonical way of representing 3D objects. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm personally just a big fan of the format. You know, it's supported in Unreal Engine, Unity, it's supported on web. It's, it's almost like human readable. It's so easy to read. Um, but we really see that as being the foundational format we're going to be using for presentation of objects. That's just the beginning, because GLTF is just what something looks like. It doesn't tell you what it is. So it can be a 3D mesh of a sword, but how do you know it's a sword? What does a sword mean? How do you express that? So we're going to be using GLTF as the presentation format, but adding on top of that, a essentially an extension probably to the ERC-71 JSON metadata schema um, to start to have an ontology of concepts. So the idea of equipment is first class, the idea of a backpack or a sword or a hat those are kind of well understood concepts that you can take from place to place because it's quite often I see NFT projects and you you go and you look at the NFT metadata and it's a picture, or it's a JPEG of a backpack or a JPEG of a hat. It doesn't even say it's a hat. There's nothing about the 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 NFT that that would let you even interpret
1: it as an object in a three D environment. I just add that um, one other inclination from us is to not make standards proprietary, even if they could be functional and interoperable for all of our customers, because it puts off investment from uh, from partners it makes them think that they're getting locked into something that is not in their interest, it's in our interest. So we've made the decision to make everything we possibly can you know, while maintaining a reasonable level of, 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 kind of quality on the network, either an open standard or at least something that, that is shared or a rule that is at least very predictable in the way that it's applied. Um, but yeah, it's gonna take a while before we can build this up into a network that's really powerful.
4: Well, awesome, certainly... yeah, thank you.
2: Thanks, John. I appreciate the question. Um, you you definitely nerded up with with the best of them, so <laughs> appreciate you going down that rabbit hole. Um, and uh, yeah, Herman, appreciate your guys' perspective as well as as I build board Elon world, which I wasn't planning, but now you've called me out publicly. I oh, you do. should, uh, should yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be uh, sending you DMs on on tips and what I can do. Um, let's let's go to Baron von Hustle and, and Josh after that. But Baron, uh, thanks for joining us. What's uh,
1: what's your question, sir? No, bro, you caught me with a mouthful of Popeyes as I'm sitting here. Um, Honestly, the one thing I wanted to do is I wanted to take a moment and just thank Herman and Rob for this amazing experience for coming and spending your time with Benjamin and and others throughout the weeks before and kind of guiding us for what to expect because that white room was like, it was fun, it was cool. But you kept saying something amazing was coming and I had a blast today. I'm not a gamer, but I'm growing into it, you know? And as someone who's almost 40, That's an interesting place to be at. And I never thought that I would be up here saying thank you so much for creating this fun game where I got to run around with 4,500 other people in a similar club to me and share this fun time. So thank you. No, thank you for your support. We were literally unable to build
2: I, lo- I love that you said that too about you know you're not really spending a lot of time being a gamer and now you're becoming one because I think a lot of you know back to the title of this of this room why do game developers hate the metaverse I think there's a little bit of resistance and fear that um, this is not going to be an additive gaming uh, opportunity it's going to be destructive kind of to the traditional world and and there are game developers who maybe are a little afraid right of losing their audiences but what you just said, Baron, is that you know you weren't really a gamer before. Now you're becoming one, so you're just adding to the to the billions of people who are spending time playing video games, which I think is is a net win for everybody here. Um, Josh, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, over to you. What's uh, what's your question, sir?
5: Yeah, I was kind of curious. Where the way that I see things with the metaverse, and you know, open to interpretation. I've been an avid gamer most of my life. Uh, probably my favorite game that's not critically acclaimed would be fable Two. i just always really liked kind of the choose your own destiny even though it's really guided but i I tend to think that we haven't yet really found a non-sumorphic use case for the metaverse and to say that just in a more simplistic manner i don't think that we've yet really cracked the code for what's going to make the metaverse like that zero to one differentiator that is going to come together at like a holy shit, this is a great level. Like you could watch a movie, you could do a concert, but you know, arguably those are uh, done in a lot of different manners. What do the two of you think is in your minds, something that you could see happening that would change the dynamic in a zero to one scale of like, What could be an incredible use case that you think most
1: people just aren't
5: thinking of right now?
1: So I think it'll go in phases, and that's kind of our strategy as well. I think in the first phase, people will latch on to real-world opportunities that can be dramatically enhanced by this kind of scale. So a really simple example is sport. You know, Let's take the English Premier League. There are literally millions of English Premier League fans around the world who will never, ever go to a football match. They will never be able to. Manchester United has fans in Southeast Asia, in India, everywhere who will never see a game. If we can put 100,000 of those people into a stadium where they can talk with their own voices, they can feel the roar of the crowd, and there are celebrities and players there that they'll meet for the very first time in their lives, and they can show their support to their team like a home team does, we're solving a very specific, very real human need for those people with very little gameplay. Now, in phase two, you might go, well, actually, you have 100,000 people in a virtual environment. What kind of cool unique stuff can you uniquely do there maybe instead of football hooliganism two teams can actually fight each other in the metaverse right their fan bases can actually war with each other during a game you know now that would have to be made something that's balanced that's fun that's different but that creates new opportunities I think in the third instance you'll see completely native emergent gameplay that comes as a consequence of ordinary creators just messing around with the environment and what's possible and I think Rob you know you taught me a lot about how that emerged in second life
3: for sure. I mean, the first thing to pull out it. <laughs> I'm of should... this.
5: One thing, really quick, just to kind of add to that, that I'm thinking about is technologically, I, I think you guys did like a 10 out of 10 today. And that's something I've said uh, as far as like, handling 4,000 people in a room. I mean, I put together a rating that I didn't actually include the technological standpoint of it. And one thing that I was just thinking about that could be very interesting is you could have, like, a full-scale medieval war. It, like, you could have 2,000 people versus
1: 2,000 people. It There's massive. a demo of this. You can see this. It's yeah. called uh, Scav Lab. We did it last year and nobody noticed. We put more people than were in the Battle of Helm's Deep with melee weapons fighting more AI than there were uruk attacking Helm's Deep. And we did it in kind of uh, one of our uh, one of our like older game project scavengers, but we did it to test it out, and yeah, it, it can be absolutely amazing, especially when you have speeches being given by the moderators. So yeah, I, I, I hear you, but this is something that you know we've been we've been working on for a while. I think. Go ahead. Oh, go
3: ahead.
2: Go down and down. Go into that no, and no, you sound, oh, you sound good now. Echo's gone. Go for
3: it. Oh, amazing. Um, so I think for the previous question, the concept of uh, skeuomorphism in the metaverse, I, I love that you've used that word because I use this all the time, this idea of metaversal skeuomorphism. And just for some context on that word, it comes, you know, the first time I heard it was, The original ios apps when people were inventing like what sort of apps are going to make sense was like well i guess a note notes on a smartphone makes sense there's like a notepad you can draw on so it's going to look like a piece of paper and a calendar is going to look like a physical calendar you draw on and it was trying to give people a bridge to to kind of how the real world works and give them an on-ramp to understanding how to use a smartphone and we're seeing this exactly happen with the metaverse right now land what the hell is land We've taken a real world concept and we've sort of projected it into the metaverse and people are latching on the meaning of the real world of land into the metaversal idea of land when land in the metaverse is actually very different in a space where you can teleport anywhere what does it mean to be close to something or far away from something um but i think to begin with all we have is those skeuomorphic things to lean on you know yeah we know about massive battles that's something which have lots of people a concert that's where you have lots of people a rally or a conference has lots of people And I think they're going to be the jumping off points. So we're going to use them to discover new formats that only make sense in the metaverse. So yeah, really good question.
2: Yeah, great, great question. I am getting the red light that uh, a wedding needs to be returned to. So we're going to wrap things up shortly. Uh, Vicky, (laughs) I do want to give you the the final question here. I really appreciate you giving us a shout out and uh, encouraging people to join and always good to see you in the space. So why don't you close us out with your question and we'll wrap things up
6: thank you board funny enough i wrote wrote down wrote like the point so that i didn't forget i wanted to thank herman and rob very much for taking time out of obviously a wedding to come and talk to us all it, it means a lot to us all i also want to shout out curtis curtis for me made it he made me laugh all the way through as i was shouting at my husband to direct my avatar around and shouting in my husband's ear there's these random names of monkeys that he's never heard of like, there's baron and like, that the fun that we all had with it is absolutely great um but my question is is that obviously uh i've learned from my daughter i'm i'm an old-time gamer of atari and haven't game for like 30 plus years you can obviously uh, uh, have these skins where you can customize skins that you'll be able to maybe i don't know sell to your friends or change that you're in the same outfits um, will there be a time when the character can actually learn a, a completely separate move um, that is just known for that character? I don't know. Say, say for example, my character wants to go through the metaverse and the thing that she's known for is the Macarena. Is that something that is going to be possible in in the future with characters?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. I'm going to give that to Rob. I would say yes, <laughs> just based on thinking about how this yeah, works. Yeah, for sure. Maybe you uh, yeah. So, so
3: normally in games, there's this notion of like an emote. Um, so if you play a game like Fortnite, the reason why this kid's doing a very specific dance is everybody has this kind of finite palette of different dances they can do. One of the things we've been really, working really hard on is to have it so every one of those 15,000 people in the crowd we can get up to can have completely unique animations happening at the same time. And it doesn't just have to be something that's being you know played from rope from some existing scheme of things. It can be something uniquely blended together. Um, Another area we're thinking about is live uh, motion capture. So we can actually have, you know, using your webcam or using more sophisticated stuff for celebrities, have them get into the space and actually... Oh, you're really spoiling. You're,
1: you're, you're spoiling a feature there, Rob. Uh, but, um, no. but yeah, what, what, I will say, what I will say is um, we're not using the vanilla uh, rendering of characters of a game engine like Unreal. It simply couldn't handle this. So Rob theme invented a new machine learning-based hardware acceleration-enabled uh, approach to character rendering that can handle vast scale on a very low-powered device. Um, there's so many little gems like that, you know. It, again, it's it's taken a decade, but I guess the answer to your question is yes. Yes, we can do that.
5: Can I just say one thing, long Before we get off, I just want to make a really good point about someone that grew up as a gamer and I lost interest. It's ten just seconds. The yellow... Ten seconds, oh, sir.
0: Okay. <laughs> the elephant in the room is that I
2: really I'm sorry, man. It's all it's all it's all robotic. Oh, it's oh garbled, well, I,
1: so. co- come to another space, and uh, we'll make sure you can open Yeah, I, I
2: I will close things out because there's a bride and groom who are like waiting for Herman to give a toast, and yeah, he's he's here talking to a bunch of monkeys and and characters. So, um, thank you guys. Her, please do everyone here, please do follow uh, Herman and Rob from oh, Her- Popable. This 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 thank space you. will be recorded. I yeah. can't thank you guys enough for taking time on the weekend um, to chat with all of us here and to follow up. You know what was a very big tech demo today. Um, You know, obviously there is a light paper now that is out uh, for us all to enjoy and to, you know, prompt us with thousands of more questions. We're going to lob at you. Um, And I do want to also give a special shout out to uh, Herman's book that's coming out. Is it October? Do you want to plug that date again? Yes,
1: Uh, October. Yeah, you can pre-order right now on my Twitter. And uh, I hope you do. A thousand copies each should do it.
2: Yes. And, uh, you know, based on this Twitter space, Herman kind of knows what he's talking about. So please do uh, pre-order his book and and learn even more about his vision and that of the improbable as well. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you guys again. We will we will share this recording for everyone to enjoy. Um, For those that are uh, not on Twitter today, um, everybody who who tuned in, thank you so much. And uh, we'll we'll see you uh, in the other side and in the metaverse.
1: Bye. all. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Uh,
0: Thanks for listening to this BoardBox Extra. Please note that none of what was discussed in this episode today should be taken as financial or investment advice. We are excited to share this content and encourage everyone to do their own research. Looking to go deeper, get more access? Join us at boardbox.io and grab a BoardBox NFT to join our private community of gamers.